Would you open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1? Last Sunday night, we uh, introduced the book to you. Tonight, we're actually going to be digging in. And uh, our goal, as I told you last time, our goal is to try to cover a, one chapter per night. Now, some nights we will get that accomplished and some nights we won't. But that's the overall goal. So tonight, uh, we're going to finish chapter 1. We looked at three verses uh, last week. But tonight, we will finish chapter 1, Lord willing or at least try to. And and here's how the Revelation chapter 1 begins, the first three verses. And may I remind you that this is God-breathed. Here's how Revelation begins. The revelation of Jesus Christ, or the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what what, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, you're going to see in just a few moments as we start really digging into chapter 1, that John was writing to, to believers who were living in terrible times of suffering and persecution. And the reason that they were experiencing this terrible time of suffering and persecution was because they refused to worship the Roman emperor Domitian. He was a bloodthirsty man. If you know anything about Roman history, you probably know about Nero. But Nero was nothing compared to Domitian. Domitian was a bloodthirsty man who wanted to be worshipped, literally worshipped as Lord and God. Now Nero did as well, but Domitian took it to a whole new uh, level. Uh, he demanded to be worshipped as Lord and as God. Now, I'm not trying to make a political statement in, in the illustration I'm about to use. I just want to try to help you understand what this must have been like for the people. I'll say one more time so I don't get in trouble. I'm not about to make a political statement, okay? But imagine what it would be like if tonight black SUVs pulled up in your front yard and federal authorities broke into your house Sent, and, and they arrested your husband or your father, sent him to prison simply because he refused to call the president Lord or God. What would that be like to all of a sudden, they come busting in, they take your husband, they take your, your father, and, and the reason is because as a Christian, they refuse to call another man Lord or God. That was essentially what the Christians in John's day we're facing. You see, Christians believed, and rightly so, that God controls history. You believe that? Christians believed that, that God controlled history. But Domitian claimed that he held the world's fate in his hands. And if you lived in the day that, uh, of John, it would almost seem like Domitian was right. And then the reason I say that is because John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos because Domitian had the power to put him there. All the other apostles were brutally killed because Domitian's kingdom was large and powerful and sadistic. He seemed to be an all-powerful ruler. He seemed to be an all-powerful man. What would give hope to Christians in a world like that? What could you say to someone who was going through a fiery trial? What would you say someone to somebody who had been exiled to an island? Left to die in that lonely island. We saw a picture of it last week. Left to die on that lonely island. What do you say to somebody like that? Well, that really is what Revelation is about. God unveils the future. And he speaks to John. And he shows John that King Jesus will one day dethrone Domitian and every other ruler who thinks he has power. See, the premise of chapter 1 is this. Chapter 1 is simply about this. Regardless of how things may appear at the moment, listen, listen, listen. Regardless of how things may appear at the moment, God is in control and King Jesus will one day return. Now that's really the the, the whole summary of chapter 1. God is in control. King Jesus is one day going to return. Now John begins with greetings and a reminder about the God we serve. Look in verse 4 and let's start digging in. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, 
grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and a and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory forever, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. Now, according to verse 4, you talk to me a little bit tonight. According to verse 4, who are the original recipients of this letter? Seven churches. Now, the seven churches of where? All right, let's, I showed you a picture. Let's see if we can do that again. showed you a picture last week, a, a map of the seven churches, and there you can see them. Uh, here's the Isle of Patmos. Let's see if I can. There it is. Here's the Isle of Patmos where John was exiled, that little tiny rocky island right there. And then the seven churches Laodicea, Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, Smyrna, and Ephesus. So John was here, and the Bible says that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, said, I want you to write a letter to these seven churches. Now, do you think that these are the only seven churches that were in existence in that day? No. Why do you think that he wrote a letter or told John to write a letter to these seven churches? All right, part of it is location. They're, closely, uh, uh, they're, they're close to Isle of Patmos. Somebody had to travel that 45 miles and, and then notice that it's almost like a circle. And there is a certain order in the churches. Which church is first? The letter, in the letter. He said, right to, to who? Who's the first one? What? Church at Ephesus. Which one is second? Smyrna? Is it Smyrna? All right. Smyrna. And then, if you go all the way around, he's, he's going in this circle. Now, Here's the question. Why these seven churches? Remember what, the, what seven symbolizes. So tell me what, what it symbolizes. Complete. Or wholeness. We're going to see this again in just, in just a few minutes. It's probably... John was writing a letter, literally, watch this, he was writing a letter literally to these seven churches because of what they were going through. But also, these seven churches represent the entire church of Christ. Most people believe that these seven churches represent churches throughout the ages, churches throughout the history, the the stages, if you will, uh, of the church. These churches are representative of the future history of the church. The, the complete body of Christ is represented uh, in those seven churches. The good and the bad and the ugly that's represented in those churches are also represented in church history. And so John was writing a letter literally to seven literal churches. The letter was to be given to them, but also it's a letter about the church of the ages as well. And John reminds these churches about the God that we serve, and I love the way he does it. And he speaks about the Trinity in verses uh, 4 and 5. And I believe that he speaks about the Trinity, including every part of the Trinity, to show that God is indeed in control. Here's how he says it. Uh, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So, let, let's look at this trinity that is revealed here. He speaks, first of all, as, of God the Father. He refers to God the Father as the one uh, who is, who was, 
and who is to come. That's a reference to God the Father. This is a way of describing the eternal aspect of God. God has no beginning and he has no ending. Uh, we don't have time to, to read the reference, but chapter 1, verse 8 and chapter 4, verse 8 have that same reference, if you will, in the book of Revelation. And it speaks about God's authority. It speaks about God's power. It speaks about God's knowledge to protect his people. Because he's the one who is. He's the one who was. He's the one who is to come. You see, the fate of the world, listen, 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 listen. The fate of the world does not rest in the hands of Domitian. The fate of the world rests in somebody far more powerful than that. You see, Domitian had, a, Domitian had a shelf life, didn't he? You know what I mean by shelf life? Yeah, there's an expiration date for him, right? We all have a shelf life. We all have an expiration date. We're not going to, and the most powerful man or woman on the planet, whoever they, he or she may be, they have a shelf life. They're only here for a while. And no matter what they do, good or bad, no matter what they do, their time is limited. And their power is limited. Even the scope of their power is limited. Yeah, you, you could talk about Obama. You could talk about Putin. But, but, but even these men, the scope of their power is limited. Uh, they're pretty much confined to their country and, and to what they can do in certain parts of the world. But, but that's limited and it's a very short shelf life. But God, God is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And the world is in his hands. He, he talks about God the Father. He also talks about God the Spirit in verse 7. Uh, it's, it's an interesting way. How does he refer to the, to the Holy Spirit in verse 4? The seven? Seven what? Sevenfold Spirit. Any other translation say it differently? The seven spirits. Okay. Remember again, the seven means complete or wholeness. Some would say that these seven spirits are seven angels sent out from the throne of God who have special responsibilities, but most scholars believe that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I subscribe to that as well, that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And again, the number seven being complete and, and perfection and wholeness, I believe that this is referring to the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit. In fact, there's a cool verse, uh, if you want to write this down, and we'll, I think we'll take the time to read it. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, over in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 11. Talks about the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11, verse 2, it says... Count with me. The Spirit of the Lord, there's the first ministry, one, will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom, two, and of understanding, three. Spirit of counsel, four, and of power, five. The Spirit of knowledge, six, and of the fear of the Lord, seven. It's a sevenfold witness of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you can do a whole study on that. John is simply saying, I want you to know something. Not only is God the Father in charge. But the Spirit in all of His fullness is at work in our world as well. And then he goes on to focus on Jesus, God the Son. In verse 5, here's what he says. And from Jesus Christ, and he describes Him in three different ways. I want you to help me with this. What are the three ways he describes Him? He's, let's try a different He's the faithful witness. What's the next one? Firstborn. Firstborn from the dead. And what was the third one? Now, why, let's, let me get out of the way here. Why would, would he refer to Jesus in these three ways? Let's, let's look at that. First of all, faithful witness. This refers to his work as a prophet or teacher. 
faithful witness describes the work of Jesus while he was on earth as a prophet or teacher. He was the faithful witness who told us who God is. He was the faithful witness who, who explained to us, who made known to us, who, re, who revealed to us who God is. He was the faithful witness. Number two, he was also the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn from the dead refers, to, of course, to his death and his resurrection. So the faithful witness describes his time on earth as a teacher, as a preacher. Firstborn from the dead refers to his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, interesting question. Was Jesus the first one to be raised from the dead? So why is he called the firstborn of the dead? Yeah. Exactly. Give me an example of somebody who was raised from the dead. Lazarus. Bad thing about Lazarus is that, yes, he was raised from the dead, but eventually he died again. Jesus is the first one who who was raised from the dead never to die again. He was the first one who was immortal, the firstborn of the dead. And because he's the firstborn, the first of many others to come, you could translate, that, translate it this way, he's not only the first one to do it, but he's the firstborn in insinuating there are others to come like him. Now, question, who are the others to come like him? Who in the world could be raised from the dead never to die again? Christians, us. There's coming a day, they're going to put my body in the ground. But my spirit will go to be with Jesus, never to die again. Eternal. So, faithful witness, his ministry here on earth, firstborn from the dead, his death, burial, and resurrection. And then I love, love, love this next phrase. He's also the ruler of the kings of the earth. Domitian may think he's got a lot of power. Other earthly rulers may think they have tremendous power, but as I said a moment ago, their power is limited. World rulers do not, listen, 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 world rulers do not realize yet that Jesus is in charge. One day they will. One day they will realize they're really not in charge. Jesus is in charge. Now, now look at these, these three things here one more time. These first two refer to the first coming of Jesus. Faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, that refers to the first coming of Jesus. Ruler of the kings refers to his second coming. In his second coming, he will make himself known in such a way that all the rulers of the world will recognize they didn't rule what they thought they did. John then speaks about the change that this Jesus has brought into our lives. Let me pause here. I meant to say this earlier. I love the way Revelation starts out. I've been, I've been in this chapter for a while now, and I love the way Revelation starts out. You know, Revelation is a difficult book. We talked about that. It's also an intriguing book. It's got all this stuff about the end of the world. It's about tribulation and all kinds of things that, that we're going to be looking at over the next months. But the, the way that the book starts out is not talking about all of those scary events of the future and the things of prophecy, but it starts out talking about King Jesus. Because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not just the revelation of future events. It's the revelation of Jesus. So, John's, John speaks about the change that, that Jesus has brought into our lives Now, look what he says, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then he says this, To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve God and Father. His God and Father. John gives us a threefold tribute to Jesus Christ. First of all, to him who loves us. Now, if you, if you like to write little notes there, you might want to write that in the Greek, this, this is in the present tense uh, and continuous action. 
Present tense, continuous action, signifying he keeps on loving us. There's never a time, this is so good, there's never a time when he stops loving us. Do you get that? Never a time, never a day when he stops loving us. He keeps on loving us. What has Jesus done for you? First of all, he loves you with an everlasting love, a love that never fails. And it also says, and he has freed us. And how has he freed us, church? Yes. Now, you know this. It's not new information for most of you. But would you pause for a moment and try to, try to get a new appreciation for this? In verse 5, he says, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It really gives you a, points back to the Old Testament, I believe. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, Israel was, was captive in the land of Egypt. And there were how many different plagues before they were, they were allowed to go back to their homeland? How many plagues did God send Egypt? Ten. There were ten plagues. And the tenth plague was the, was the plague where the Passover angel came through. Now, in that tenth plague, when the Passover angel came through, when, they put, when God's people put the blood on the doorpost, the blood of a lamb on the doorpost, and the death angel saw the blood on the doorpost, he passed over that house. And that event was the one that convinced Pharaoh to let his, God's people go. That event, was that, that Passover lamb was the event that essentially freed them from slavery. Now, it was God who did it, but it was through the blood of the Passover. In the same way, look at this, in the same way, Jesus Christ has freed us from our bondage too. He's freed us from the bondage of sin by His blood. Somebody read Revelation 5.9 for us. Because we see it not only in chapter 1, we see it throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation 5.9. Somebody read it out loud. Absolutely, thank you. How about Revelation chapter 7, verse 14? Seven fourteen through the blood of the Lamb. You see this this theme going through the book of Revelation, the blood of the Lamb that has made the difference. Now he says also, talking about a threefold tribute to Jesus, he loves us, he's freed us. And then he says he made us something in that verse, in verse uh, 5, I believe it is, or 6. What does he say he made us? Kingdom of priests. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to talk to somebody nearby. Try to figure out what that means. Well, what does it mean that he made us this kingdom of priests? What, what, what was, what's our role and what does all that mean? Go ahead and talk to somebody. All right, what you got? What, what, is, what do you think he means when he says, and he's made us a kingdom of priests? Say that louder. We're part of his family? Yes. 
All right, preach the gospel to all creatures. Go before God. Let's talk about what a priest does. A priest is essentially the link between man and God, is he not? The priest represents man to God, and the priest also represents God to man. He has a dual role. He represents man to God. He's interceding to God on behalf of man. But he also represents God to man. He's telling man what what God wants and what God expects and and what God's regulations and all those kinds of things. So so the priest is that intermediary. He's that that link between man and God. And and here's what he says in Revelation. Uh, He says, he loves us. He has freed us from our sin. And he has made us to be a chosen people so that we can be a mediator between a holy God and a lost world. Uh, we don't have time to look at the references, but you might want to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is the change that Christ has brought about in our lives. Now, we come to verse 7, which is essentially the theme of the book. The theme of the entire book of Revelation is essentially in verse 7. And here's what he says in verse 7. Look. Now, what does does it mean? This is very practical. What does it mean when he says look? Yeah. But why do you say look? Huh? To get their attention. So, here's what it says. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And this is very interesting. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. You might want to mark, highlight, circle, underline, at least right on your notes, that verse 7 is like the theme of, verse for the book of Revelation. The overriding theme of the book of Revelation is the return of Jesus Christ to defeat all evil and to establish His reign on the earth. Now, the question that some debate is this, is Jesus referring here, or is John uh, referring here to the second coming Or is he referring to the rapture? Now, let me quickly say, there are some who say they're the same thing. There are some who say that, that there's, no, there's no difference between the second coming and the rapture. And others say that there is no rapture, that there's only a second coming. Alright, so let me kind of outline this for you a little bit. In the second coming, the purpose of the second coming is to bring the world to an end. There will be a judgment, if you will. What's the purpose of the rapture? To remove the church from this world. Now, we'll get into this in, in great detail later because there's the, do you believe in the pre-trib rapture or mid-trib or post-trib? And we'll, we'll get into all of that kind of thing. Uh, when is the rapture going to occur? I, I'm going to operate under, under the assumption, and we'll again dig into this. I kind of have the assumption, but I'm not 100% sold on it. I'm, I'm probably about 85% sold on it. But I, I'm sold that probably the rapture is going to, to occur before the tribulation. At least that's the way we want it to occur, isn't it? That's, that's what we're hoping is going to happen. And so I'm hoping with you that the, that the rapture, that I'm, first of all, I'm hoping that there really is a rapture. You know, because again, some people say that the rapture and the second coming are the same thing, and others say that there is no rapture, just only the second coming. So, so I'm hoping with you that there is a rapture, and I'm really hoping with you that the rapture happens before the great tribulation. Okay, 
So, the second coming is to bring the world to an end and to bring about judgment. The rapture is to bring about the church. Now, now this is where, to me, it gets interesting. The second coming is going to be public. There won't be any question about it. The rapture, the rapture is going to be, for, for lack of a better term, the, the rapture is going to be somewhat secret. Now, here's what I mean by secret. It's going to happen before, it's going to be over when, when the lost people suddenly understand what happened. They're not going to, it's like, where's my mom? Where, where, where's my wife? Where's my husband? Where's my children? So the rapture will, will occur suddenly, secretively, and you won't know about it till it's over. Second coming is going to be very, very public. Because it's going to bring about the end of the world. Now, with that in mind, let's read the scripture again and you tell me what he's referring to. In verse 7, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Which one of these is he referring to? Second coming, exactly right. It says that every eye will see him. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. I don't have the answer here, but I just want your opinion. How could that be? I mean, literally, if every eye is going to see him. And let's just focus on those who are on the earth right now. I can't get my mind around this. How is everybody in Powdersville... And everybody in Uganda, and everybody in Nova Scotia, and everybody in Florida, and everybody at the North Pole, and everybody at the South Pole, and everybody in China, and everybody in Indonesia, how is everybody going to see him? Any ideas? You have to say it louder. (laughs) He's coming back on the internet. I love that. We're a speck. I think you're right. We we are we act and live, myself included, as if the world is the center of everything. You know, everything revolves around our world. No, it doesn't. Because right now you can only see certain things in the world, but one day because we ultimately are so small. And we're going to see him in all of his glory. And he is going to be so large and magnificent. Somehow, my mind can't comprehend it. Somehow, at the same moment when he comes back, every eye will see him. Isn't that amazing? But that's not all. This is where it gets really interesting. It says, Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. Now, what do you think that refers to? So what? The dead? Yes. Yeah. John reveals to us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, John reveals to us that Not only will every eye see him, that is, those who are living on the earth, everybody on the earth will see him. But but he says, oh, he kind of drops this in there. Even those who pierced him. In other words, not just those living on earth right now. But even those who have lived on the earth previously and who are now dead. Even those who pierced him. It's interesting that John brings that up, isn't it? 
even those who pierced him. By the way, if, if I, were, if I was, was that guy, you, you would think, oh, <laughs> what have I done, right? So what does John say the next thing, what's the next phrase that he says there? They will mourn. All will see him, all will know him, and many will mourn. Here's the reason. Because everyone will know who he is, and those who rejected him will mourn because they were so blind to the truth. You probably have had this experience. I have had it several times, maybe many times. Have you ever talked to somebody and you got frustrated because you're trying to explain to them who Jesus is, and they didn't want to hear it? You ever had one of those conversations? Or you tried to explain to them who Jesus is, and, and, and they were antagonistic, they, they wanted to debate you, or you tried to explain to them who Jesus is, and, and, and they basically said, well, I believe there was Jesus, and he was a great teacher, and he was a great prophet, he was a moral example, and that was all he was. If you've ever had any of those experiences where you've tried to, you wanted, here's what you wanted to do, you wanted to kind of unscrew the top of their head and pour Jesus in there, Right? You're trying your best to convince them that Jesus is real. You're trying your best to communicate what you know to be true. John says, and there'll be a day when that Jesus returns and every eye will see him and everybody will know him and even those in the past will see him and they will mourn because they will recognize the truth they have rejected. Can I say to you tonight, if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you still have time to accept Him before you mourn without Him. Because once He returns, you have no other chance to accept Him. Look in Mark chapter 13 real quickly. Mark chapter 13. Verse 24. Mark writes about the end of time as Jesus was describing it. And in Mark chapter 13, uh, let's start in uh, verse 20. Let's start in verse 23. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Jesus is speaking. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Reminds me of what John said in Revelation. Look, he's coming in the clouds. At that time, verse 26, at that time men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. The certainty of the Lord's return is one of the key central events in the book of Revelation. One of the central themes of the book. And then, quickly, we need to talk about the commander in charge of history in verse 8. He says... The commander is speaking here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Three titles were given to him to show his, his power and his purpose in history. First of all, the Alpha and Omega. You know this, I'm sure, that the Alpha and Omega is the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And he's basically saying this, I'm the beginning and I'm the end. And before anything existed, I existed. I am the beginning and the end of all things. He was there when the world was started. He will be there when the world comes to an end. Alpha and Omega. I am also, he says, the one who is, who was, and is to come. He's the eternal God who's not limited by time. Every person here, including the person speaking, is limited by time. But God is not. He's unlimited, who, who is, who was, and who is to come. And he is also the Almighty, able to do anything. 
That's what the word almighty, the one whom no one can exist. And you'll see that name, the almighty, throughout the book of Revelation. So, we've got eight minutes. All right, we've got eight minutes. We're going to go from verse 9 to verse 20. In verses 9 through 20, John then gives us his first vision. John has a series of visions in the book of Revelation. And the first vision of Revelation is this. And I love this. The first vision that John gets is not about the sky turning black. The first vision is not about the bowls and the wrath of God. The first vision is not about the tribulation. The first vision that John gets is King Jesus. And in verse 9... He paints a picture of Jesus that he saw on the Isle of Patmos. Um, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and uh, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I love this. He's an old man now. He's 90 years old. Still faithful to Jesus. Still faithful to the Word. Still faithful to the Gospel. He says, I'm here on the Isle of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then he kind of tells us how this all came about, this vision of Jesus. He says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit, he said, that underscoring the source of the vision was from God. That What he's about to describe to us did not come from himself. The source of the vision was from God. He said, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, you're going to see in just a moment that this loud voice that he heard was a voice from the past. It's a voice he had heard before. It's a voice he had known quite well. It was the voice of Jesus. And for three years or so, he followed Jesus and he listened to his voice as he taught. And he listened to his voice as they as they laughed and he listened to his voice as, as he in rage cleared the temple and he listened to his voice as he was hanging on the cross. He was very familiar with the voice of Jesus. But here he describes the voice of Jesus in a different way. He describes it as what, class? How does he describe the voice of Jesus? Yes. He says, I, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Have you ever noticed that when somebody blows a trumpet, you notice it? It's kind of undeniable, right? I mean, you don't miss it. If, if I had, I wish I'd thought about this. If I, I should have done this. If I'd had somebody in the balcony at that moment and blew the trumpet, there'd have been a rapture right here, wouldn't it? Just <laughs> you would have been scared all of a sudden. I had your attention then. Write that down for next time I teach this. He said, I heard this voice, and the voice was undeniable. It was a voice from the past, but it sounded this time quite different. It sounded like a trumpet. And then, not only did he have this... Uh, voice from the past, then he got a vision of the glorified Christ. You see, in verse 12, he said, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. It's kind of an odd wording there. I turned around to see the voice. Turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands, someone like a son of man, dressed in a white robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. And he goes on to describe him. Uh, let me quickly hit these things for you. It says, first of all, he's dressed in, in a white robe in verse 12 and 13. Dressed in the robe of a, white, of a high priest. That speaks of, of the fact that Jesus is among the seven churches, interceding for his people and watching over his church. 
I love this. He says, I saw seven golden lampstands, and, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. The, the, the lampstands represent the seven churches. And he says, when I saw this person, he was standing among the churches. He was there with them. I love to know that the Lord Jesus is still with his church. He was there with them. So the, the robe is dressed in a robe of a high priest. His hair. What color was his hair, class? White. White hair symbolizes the eternality of Jesus. He's from everlasting to everlasting, the Son of God. His eyes were what? Blazing fire. Now, this is a a contrast. John had seen the eyes of Jesus before. He had seen tears fill the eyes of Jesus. And now he says his eyes are like blazing fire, signifying the penetrating insight of Jesus. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Then he says, and he had feet like bronze, verse 15. Feet like bronze. The bronze speaks of judgment. It speaks of the bronze altar of the tabernacle where sin is judged. The bronze feet signify the time when he will put, watch this, he will put all enemies under his feet. Every evil under his feet. The foes of God will be crushed under the feet of God. And then his voice. His voice, verse 12 and verse 15, this loud voice is symbolic of the Lord's power and authority. In verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And and then in verse 15, he says this, His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Has anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? Raise your hand. All right, you're you're going to get this, lots of you are. When you get close to Niagara Falls, the roar of the, of the water drowns out all the other voices around, doesn't it? It's hard to hear. I mean, when you get close, now you can be at a distance and you can still talk. But when you get close to the Niagara Falls, the roar of the waters drowns out everything else. John says this voice of Jesus is like that. Every person will give heed to his voice because in that day of judgment, all other voices will be silenced by his voice. Then he talks about what his right hand. Verse 16, seven stars are in his right hand representing probably either, the, either angels sent to each of the seven churches or the human leaders of each of those seven churches But the right hand represents authority and control. And Jesus exercises absolute authority over his church. And then he talks about his mouth in verse 16. It's a reference to the word of God. How did he describe his mouth in verse 16? Double-edged sword, which is, of course, a reference to uh, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And in the temptation, Jesus defeated Satan by the word of God. And at the end of the ages, the final battle will be won. With the same weapon. Get that. Don't miss that. At temptation, he defeated the devil with that double-edged sword. And at the final battle, he'll defeat the devil the same way. The Word of God. Then he says his face. He describes his face in verse 16. How does he describe his face? When John looked at the face of the glorified Christ, he was seeing the Shekinah glory of God. John was seeing the brilliance of God. And he says in verse 17. He says, when I saw him. I fell at his feet. Though dead. As though dead. That's an instinctive human reaction of fear. And in the Bible, Abraham did that. Abraham fell on his face when God talked to him. Moses fell on his face. He was afraid of God. The three disciples who saw his face shine as the sun uh, in in the... uh, Mount of Transfiguration, and they fell on their knees. Saul of Tarsus, when he saw the light uh, at the, on the road to Damascus, fell on his face before God. I want to tell you something. You might stand proud and cocky right now, but when you stand before Jesus, you'll be on your face. The amazing thing about this, if you'll remember, and I, I'm, about to, I'm about to close, so don't, don't get upset. I'll hang in there. Amazing thing about this is 60, about 60 years before this, 
John was the one who laid on the breast of Jesus. And now he sees Jesus and he's falling on his face. Because John in this vision in Revelation got to see Jesus glorified. And ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. That's the Jesus you will see one day. That's the Jesus you will stand before one day. And that Jesus is not my little best friend. That Jesus is God in all of His glory. And that Jesus will either be your Savior or He will be your judge. And so let's close it out by reading verse 17. When I saw Him, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. Those are four good words for you right now tonight. Four good words. You ought to understand. Do not be afraid. Christian, you have no reason to fear the future. If you know Jesus, do not be afraid. He says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I want you to know something. The one who has the keys has the authority. So he says, I've got the keys to death and Hades. And then he goes on to say, write therefore what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And starting next time, we'll be looking at those seven churches because he wrote a letter specifically to each of those seven churches. Here's what I want you to get from chapter 1. I want you to get a glimpse of the glorified Christ. And recognize that the one that John saw is the one we will all one day stand in front of. And you can try to ignore that and you can try to deny that. But it's not going to change the fact that one day you'll stand in front of him. And the sovereign Lord Jesus, glorified in, his, in, in all of his glory, he will either be your savior or he will be your judge. I hope that today, tonight, if you don't know Jesus, you will accept him as your savior. As Revelation opens... We don't get a picture of tragedy and, and trials and, and tribulation. As Revelation opens, we get a picture of Jesus. And John says, He is in control. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Thank you that even though we are small, we are a speck on this little tiny planet. You love us and you keep on loving us. And you have freed us by the blood of your Son. And you have made us a kingdom of priests to relate to this lost world and to tell them about the Jesus that is coming. And I pray for anyone here tonight, and they're not ready to meet you. I pray for conviction in their heart to be so real tonight that they cannot sleep until they bow their knee to King Jesus. And I pray that in his name. Amen.